Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We are on the road again here uh, in the Huntsville, Alabama area with uh, an angel investor. So you're going to get a lot of insights into how Patrick Bentley became an angel investor and all the things around that. His story is one for the ages. And we have another HBCU grad coming through. Uh, We've had a number of Howard people on here. Now it's Morehouse's chance to shine. So we're very much looking forward to this. And before we get into this, Patrick, like on the road down here, it was a beautiful drive, man. Like just the scenery. Like if you haven't been to this part of the U.S., I would highly recommend it. We're going to talk more about what's happening in Huntsville, Alabama for the those who have never been, uh, but it's great in the hospitality that you have shown. <laughs> I have not experienced in a while, I'm in a long time. It, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you had a good time. Man. We have had a great time getting to know each other, so I know this conversation is going to be very illuminating for folks who get a chance to peek inside your <laughs> life here a little bit. Uh, so let's start where we like to begin, mm. which is you when you were much younger than you were today. Yeah. So you're not originally from Huntsville, Alabama. You're no. from Savannah, Georgia. So talk right. about what you were like back then. Because based on our conversations, it seems like there are some consistencies and also some growth. Yeah, so just yeah. talk about whether younger you, when they look at you today, if they would be like, I want to be friends with that person. Man, I think absolutely right like uh so let's start just what was i like as a child i've always been around entrepreneurs my mom ran you know a tax service out of her house you know an accounting service she was also a notary so i've always seen her kind of like get into it even outside of work you know my cousins were all like entrepreneurs in their own right my uncles were my grandfather You know, he was an entrepreneur. You know, he owned his own nightclubs. He was one of the first African-Americans in Savannah to own their own nightclubs, you know. And so I've always been around that early on. Right. And so I think that I've always sort of had this idea that a business should be an asset that makes money for me. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to work it. Right. And I think that that's kind of the difference between a job and a business. So I did the same thing with uh, this ports escorting company that I had. So a lot of people may not know, but Savannah, Georgia is a really big port city. After 9-11, in order for you to get on the ports, you needed to have this credential, right? It's uh, called a TWIC card, T-W-I-C. It's a transportation worker identification credential, I think is what it stands for. But anyway, you know, so there was this need, right, in the market. So many truck drivers, especially those who were like long distance truck drivers, or if they were dropping off like cars to be shipped to Ghana or Nigeria, didn't know that they needed this credential. Mm. And so people would actually just charge them to escort them onto the port while they were doing their business on the port. And so, you know, typical going rate was like, you know, $100 an hour. But the way that people used to get their clients would be they would just kind of sit in front of the gate and wait for people to be turned around, you know. And so, again, I'm trying to figure out my way. And I was like, okay, well, here's another way that I can make some money. You know, $100 an hour is really good money, you know, especially at that time in my life. But immediately once I started doing it, my thoughts were, well, how do I scale this, right? How can I do it differently from everyone else? What I decided to do 
was to build a website for it, right? Because people obviously are going to search for this before they come, right? Or once they realize that there's a problem, they're usually going to go to their phones or go to the internet to figure out a solution, you know? And at that time, there was nobody that was doing that, maybe one other company, right? So I made a website, you know, I put my listings up and that then led me to getting more business. And eventually these people started saying things like, hey, I've got a hundred trucks that are coming in the next two or three months. Do you think we can create a relationship where, you know, I can invoice you for the week or for the month? And then, you know, we just settle up in that way. And so I started doing that. And immediately once I did that, I started hiring other people, you know, and I would, you know, maybe pay them $50 an hour and charge the company $100 an hour. And then I would invoice them. And so always been sort of entrepreneurial, right? Like without even knowing what I was doing, right? Like I didn't understand that what I was doing was like scaling or maybe I didn't have the words for it, but I've always kind of been that sort of person. To answer the direct question, I think that if 15 year old me and even 25 year old me, even 30 year old me were to look at the present day me, they would definitely say, I wanna be friends with that person. And more so they would probably say, I wanna know what he knows. Most people say I want what they want, but what I tend to say is like, I wanna know what this person knows. That's excellent. So speaking of moving, your family is not necessarily originally from Savannah, Georgia. At least it seems like you come from a very unique culture, Gullah Geechee culture. For the 90s babies, you may have some reference (laughs) point, uh, which is Gullah Gullah Island, one of my favorite shows when I was a kid, by the way. So talk about how that kind of impacted your childhood experience. If you can, I don't want to get you in trouble with the other Geechee folks out. (laughs) who may have a different view but from your perspective what was it like growing up in that culture because i have not been to savannah yet i may when this actually is published though i'm going for the first time this year Uh, but for the folks who don't have a clue what it's like to grow up in a port city maybe they've heard of houston these other places what's it like in savannah georgia and on that coast on that edge of the atlantic where you have like a strong Geechee culture Mm. and growing up in that environment. Yeah, man. You know, what's funny is, is I really didn't understand like how special that was until later, until I was an adult. My family, both sides of my family are actually from South Carolina and specifically around, you know, those islands and along that corridor. Gullah Geechee culture is, you know, special because uh, most of the Africans who were transported to that part of the world all came from the same exact place in Africa because they had the skill of growing and cultivating rice, right? And so if you've ever heard of like Carolina gold, right, it's a specific kind of rice that grows along the South Carolina coast. Interestingly enough, because of the uh, risk of malaria and because of the like extreme heat, Many times, like the folks who owned the plantations would not be there during the summer months, right? And so they ended up sort of leaving, you know, the slaves and these, you know, servants to their own devices. And so because we were all from the same place, we sort of kept a bit more of our culture. We have a very specific dialect, right? And we have just a very specific way of life. And so Savannah isn't really, it's a Southern city, but like, it's not Southern in the same way that many other places are, right? Growing up for me, I was just always around the water, man. Like I can remember going crabbing and I can remember going fishing and I can remember going out and like, you know, getting, you know, pulling oysters from oyster beds and like, you know, all that kind of stuff, doing that with my, 
you know, my father and doing that with my uncles and, you know, just not really real. Like for me, that was just normal. Right. But as I got older, I realized that that was really just an experience that other people didn't have. I think Savannah is just very special in that way. In the Gullah Geechee culture, it just permeates through a lot of things and you don't really realize it until later on in your life. Like, so my aunts and my uncles, while I don't have that like Geechee accent, right? Like they absolutely did, right? But I didn't realize it was anything different until I started getting out and seeing more of the world and really kind of realizing like, oh, okay, like that's a very special thing and it's very unique to like that area. What's you know? an example of a Geechee phrase if, if you have one? Or oh, something? like over day, right? Like, so a good one is over day, right? Like, so the way that we pronounce our words is very, very different. And I grew up saying that and still sometimes we'll say that. So like, you know, over there, but we say day or like great day in the morning or like, you know, so there's a lot of different things that we say, but it's just like that dialect and, you know, it's easy for us to understand and normal, but you just don't hear a lot of people talking like that. And that's what I mean when I say like we're Southern, but specifically the way that we speak is very, very, it's impacted very much so by the Geechee Gullah culture. And another thing to mention that comes to mind is that like, so my family on my dad's side, we've got 50 acres of land that's just ours, right? And like, so I grew up and we would always just say we go into the country. When I go to my, like sort of my ancestral lands where like my uncles, like they all were kind of living on this land, right? And again, didn't really seem special to me at the time, but like we had our own like, land plot, you know, so we would hunt and farm on this land. And right now, the Geechee Gullah people are actually fighting to hold on to many of these properties because now these properties that when they gave them to us, so so many of these were kind of given to people after, you know, the Civil War. But now these like sort of waterfront, you know, low lying places have become very valuable. There's a lot of predatory practices by developers and, you know, banks to sort of get that property because it's become so valuable. And so we still have that property, right? And so it's a very special thing, but many families and communities have had that land taken from them over the years. So that is super rich. Yeah. So let's transition now to your tech background. You yeah, mentioned a little yeah. bit, you know, there was a website maybe like when, <laughs> you know, you figured out that there was a, a value add opportunity at the ports, but describe for us your earliest experience with sort of innovation and technology. What was that thing for you where you were like, okay, I want to make it real? Really good question. I would say that my first experience with technology or innovation was actually, I guess, by proxy. I had some friends when I was in college at Morehouse. And, you know, after college, everybody, again, is trying to figure out their lives. Two of my friends started a crowdfunding site specifically to fund businesses that were impacting the Black community positively. We're doing some digital marketing and, you know, they had a blog. And so I was following it. I was like, oh, this is dope. You know, really like it. And they shared this article one time and it was 10 reasons why your kid needs to learn how to code. This was actually before I had the poorest escort escorting business. And I read that article and then that article led to other articles and TED Talks. There are lots of people who don't know about this. Right. And that was really the spark that led to me learning technology and starting what became my first venture, which was opening up 
a nonprofit called uh, Urban STEM Academy. And like what we were focused on was teaching kids how to code. So I started learning how to code in order to, you know, fulfill that vision, which is then what gave me the, the skills to build my own website. And something as simple as that website, you know, led to me being able to do magic, right? Like I was able to do some things that other people weren't with the same time in the day because of that technology. So what kind of coding? When you say that, it sounds so amorphous yeah. to people who are not technical. What do you mean when you say coding? So all computers, all websites, all of these digital like tools that we're using every single day are ultimately just like lines of semantic text to tell computers what to do. Databases, for lack of a better word, and we're all entering information into these databases or entering commands through some graphical interface to make our computers do something. And those computers are doing something either on like locally on our machines or they're leveraging the World Wide Web in order to bring us information. Right. But all of that ultimately is being done through code. If I do this, then you do this, right? And that ultimately leads to these applications. I started off just really learning like HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript, right? And essentially that's what creates websites, right? So HTML is just how we define elements, you know, pictures and, you know, paragraphs and, you know, divisions or little, you know, sections of our website. And CSS is how we style that, you know, cascading style sheet. So, you know, what colors do we want things to be, you know, and, and, I, and I'm being very simplistic. Of course, now all of these things have, you know, become really mature and, and JavaScript is really how you create interactivity. I started learning HTML, CSS and JavaScript. So you learn how to create a web page. But then, of course, what is a web page without like functionality? So a simple version of that would be if somebody submits their information on a contact form, how do I actually make my website send me that information, right? And so, of course, that then leads to, well, now how do I like store that information and recall it when I need to, which is how you can, of course, that then leads to, well, I need a database where I can store this information. And then once you start building more complex things before you know it, you're building applications. All websites at this point are applications, right? And so... But that's essentially what applications are, is the ability to, what well, we call it CRUD, but it's C-R-U-D, create, read, update, and delete, right? So it's being able to create records and store them, read from the database where we store them, and then update that record and then be able to delete it. And that is the basis of all applications. One question just led to another, right? Like, all right, how do I store it? All right. Now, how do I do that on a, on a phone? Right. How do I create mobile applications? All right. Now, how do I scale my application so that somebody in India can also use my application? And then you start getting into servers and availability. And so it's sort of been this decades long journey from starting to build websites to now where I'm I've worked at AWS and I'm really good at cloud architecting. And now I work at Google. So it's just been this super long journey. So you can start there. If you're listening to this right now, you want to follow your path or at least see if that's something for you, you would start there. Yeah, start, I would just say start building websites, right? And the questions will come. I think that's really true of anything, right? Like once you start, you will, the questions will naturally come and then you will naturally try to find answers for those questions. Excellent. Speaking of questions, 
you are an angel investor. That's one of the reasons that you are talking today is because you want to get your sort of message out. You're very young in the game, but also yeah. very experienced in the space in terms of, you know, your background in tech and all that, being a Googler now. <laughs> so what is the Black Angel Group? Without giving away the secret sauce and all of that stuff, what is it? What was the genesis of it? How is it organized? What does it mean to somebody who has no clue what that is? I'll have to give props to Google. In 2020, we had this sort of reckoning, right, in, in the country. You know, the George Floyd thing had happened, and we were kind of at the height of racial tension. Many companies, larger organizations started to respond to that, like, man, we need to do something about this. Companies like Amazon, companies like Google, you know, Microsoft, they were all trying to figure out, well, how do we respond to this? And many of them responded to this sort of racial tension by creating programs to get more black folks into their businesses, right? And give them more opportunities. And this became sort of like, you know, DEI, right? Like diversity, equity, and inclusion. It had the surge during that time. And Google actually took a different approach to this problem, right? And I could be telling this story wrong, but this is my perspective of what happened. What they really did was instead of them creating their own programs, what they did is they created this fund, let's call it. And so they put millions of dollars into this fund, the Equity Through Technology Fund. And instead of them creating programs, what they decided was, hey, we're going to let our black Googlers and our you know, other represented groups tell us what they like to see. So many times this would create like, OK, how do we actually get black people into tech? Right. How do we you know, get them certified? And how do we strengthen our relationships and support of black banks? And, you know, so all of these things kind of started popping up. But one of the things that popped up was, well, you know what, let's take all of these high earning black Googlers that we have, and let's teach them about angel investing, right? Because angel investing sort of solves or at least helps the community in sort of two ways that I see that are really important. So one is, of course, investing into companies at early stages potentially increases the wealth or the financial uh, situation of the folks who are investing in these companies. Right. But then, of course, the other way that this really helps businesses in the community is that the more black people who are investors and in making decisions about who gets the money, that also increases the likelihood that black startups get funded. A group of really smart Googlers decided that they wanted to create a program and have Google pay for black Googlers to take angel investing school. And of course, angel investing school is ran by Andy Ayim, who's been a, you know, a guest on your show. Great program. And so they created this sort of relationship with Andy where he would come in during Black History Month, and he would run 40 Googlers through this program. The first cohort of Angel Investing School then created their own angel collective. They said, all right, like we've been through this. Let's now go and start investing in companies. And so they created this collective, which was, I think, really informal at the time. But then, you know, they sort of formalized it. But that became BAG, right? Black Angel Group. So a lot of people don't know that Google has a few different sort of investment vehicles that exist inside of the organization. They've got Google Ventures, right? There's Gradient Ventures, and then there's Capital G. Early stage investments, sort of, you know, mid-stage investments, and then they've got this growth fund, you know? And so 
there were black people who were a part of these. And that is essentially what became the founding members of BAG, right? You know, we've got all these different programs, start, you know, Google for startups and all this kind of stuff. They created BAG. I went through angel investing school and then I just kind of was like, yo, I really need to join BAG. But that's sort of my version. Like, I'm sure that Jason and some of the others, LJ and Anika, Henry, like all of them who are sort of the founding members may tell that story a little differently. But like, you know, that is bag from my perspective. And so I've been able to um, benefit from like a, a, the work of a lot of brilliant black, you know, brothers and sisters at Google. Love that. So let's dig in a little bit more there. Okay. So it's not just you, you represent or at least work with a number of other people. And when you said smart Googler, I'm like, that's sort of like uh, redundant a little bit, <laughs> I guess, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. So if you are on a founder's cap table, mm. what does that mean? Like, what is a founder going to get from having you in their investor pool, especially early on, that they're probably, if not definitely, not going to get from other investors? Oh, man. So I think that's a really good question. And a really tough question, right? And I think that truly all investors should ask themselves that. So I think uh, right now, at this stage that I'm at, I'm really rarely on a cap table as an individual, right? Like I'm much more investing with other more experienced founders, right? So I want to answer that question sort of in two ways, right? And I'll start with me as an individual. I've had my own startup, right? And I've failed, right? I've built an MVP twice, right? Like I've made the mistakes of having the wrong co-founder and, you know, just building before I actually had validated. And so I think me specifically, so you get that experience and I've worked for startups. I've worked internationally, like I've spent time in the Middle East, specifically in Bahrain. And I've worked with people from the UK and from, you know, Nigeria and Ghana. I've worked with people from Dubai and Saudi. And so I've also got a level of international experience. So I've been an operator. I've been a founder. I also know how to architect and build solutions at scale. I'm also working with enterprise level customers. And so I get to see and understand how the enterprise sales process works. And it's hard, right? And it's not necessarily a thing that you intuitively understand unless you've been in that world, right? And how enterprise level companies think. A lot of different tools, AWS, Google Cloud, you know, Microsoft Azure. So as you start to think about scale, you can't really scale without having some type of cloud-backed system. And it's important to know when you're over-engineering, cost optimizing, and figuring out the simplest solution and the simplest way to get to where you need to be. So all of those are things that, you know, I've become really good at over time, right? So me as an individual, that's what you get, right? You get that founder's experience, that technical experience, you know, that that network, right? And the, in, the international sort of thinking. But most of the time when I'm investing, I'm investing, as I said, with more experienced investors. And many times that will be through BAG, right? And so I think BAG is actually really exceptional in terms of like the individuals that we've brought together. We're talking about this collective of people who have all either work at Google currently or, you know, have worked at Google. And we're talking about product managers from YouTube. We're talking about people that work for DeepMind, right? We're talking about people who are developers on Google Chrome and on Android, and also people who work for these different uh, sort of venture capital and investing arms. 
And so when you talk about just the collective brain power of the people who are in bag, it's astounding, man. You know what I mean? And to be able to have access to those people as advisors that can help you edit your pitch deck or help you build a relationship with somebody who can buy your product, right? Or buy your service or, you know, like just introduce you to other VCs, right? Like that, that kind of stuff is just priceless, right? And so I would say as a collective bag on your cap table is like, I mean, that's gold, bro. And I mean, the relationships that that we have with other VCs, like that also says something about your company. The fact that, you know, because they're we're really selective about who we put our money behind. And so got it. So what are some of the things that bag is is looking for? You may want to give examples of investments, but certainly don't feel obligated to do that. But if I'm a founder listening to this and I'm like, oh, well, that would be great. Do I qualify? What are some mm-hmm. things that I should be thinking about? Man, so I think it kind of runs the gamut, right? From my experience, and it's very limited, right? So I will be careful about what I say. I've seen us invest in companies that are pre-revenue, right? I've seen us invest in companies and take interest in companies that are also, so so far, the most mature company that I've seen has been a Series A, right? And actually doing a follow-on. And so I won't actually mention, you know, those, right? Like I don't, you know, I don't want to speak or like, you know, maybe give away some of the secret sauce and I don't want to speak out of turn, right? I don't know if that would be a problem or not. But what I will say is that how we're evaluating each of those companies is very different depending on where they are in terms of their maturity, right? So, you know, the things that we're looking for in a seed investment are very different, right? Like you may not have your revenue model quite figured out yet, you know, but at a series A, we're definitely expecting someone or, you know, a group that is much more mature. So far, I think, and this may be the difficulty of like getting a bag investment is that we've really got so many different people from so many different experiences that like they're all looking and evaluating very differently. So, you know, we've got people who who are a part of our collective who have worked at Andreessen Horowitz, right, as an example, the way that they're evaluating companies is a little bit more sophisticated than, say, the way that I would, right? Everyone should take a shot, right? Because we've seen, I've, I've seen deals that run the gamut. I would say how I'm evaluating in pre-seed is basically the team. What I'm looking for is that you've got a well-rounded team, right? Like you've got someone who is sort of the leader in terms of sales, right? You've got someone who also usually I prefer an in-house CTO, right? Like I want to see someone inside of the team who actually is technologically inclined, right? And 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 maybe you're not building the product in-house, but you need to have the leadership of that build happening inside. And I want to also see someone or some type of connection to whatever industry you're selling in. Like those are really important for me. And then, you know, the more mature you get, I'm sort of looking for these milestones, right? So like after that, when you start going for your series A, you know, that product should be validated. You should already have your initial customers, right? Like you should already have a plan for scale, you know, those kinds of things. And so I think it really runs the gamut. I would encourage everyone to start applying to be funded by BAG. And that's simply just going to blackangelgroup.com. We've got a contact form for both prospective members as well as for people who are looking for investment. Fill that out, right? Like, let us know what you're doing. 
and honestly, you know, get a look, right? I've seen all kinds of deals come through. So yeah, absolutely. That's what's up and appreciate you kind of opening the door a little bit. <laughs> uh, we appreciate that. Let's go back to your why. So you could be doing a lot of things with your cash, especially during these times in this particular moment in history, but why angel investing? I mean, you could, you know, invest more in what you're doing. Like it's it's time, it's money, it's resources. Why put it in angel investing and not somewhere else? Oh man, really good question. I think that anyone who's considering doing angel investing absolutely has to have a why other than money, right? Because truth of the matter is, is that like you're going to lose on many deals, right? Like you're going to put your money in and you're going to lose on a lot of them. But hopefully you have enough wins to at least break even. So my why, I think I have a few. Of course, there's the money, right? Like there's the the chance of, you know, taking my money and, you know, 10xing it or 100xing it. My personal reason is that, like, I did not know anything about angel investing six months ago. Where I come from, like, people don't know about angel investing. And so there's definitely a part of me that is just, I love stretching my self-concept and what I thought was possible for me. And I find it really intriguing to learn more about this industry and how things work and, and just sort of build myself up. Sort of like, like you said, just kind of opening the door a little bit. So I've kind of been exposed to now a new thing that I can learn. So that's a big part of it. I think it's a different way to provide access to the Black community and potentially provide generational wealth, both by, you know, investing and creating more opportunities for wealth building from the investor side, but also providing or increasing the probability of black founders being, you know, funded. I mean, we, we all know the stories, you know, many times who's getting the, the money like is really sort of a product of can these people see you as a CEO? Do they see you as a capable person? Right. And we all know that many times, you know, because of the historical context and the present context that we're all living in, there are lots of really smart black founders who get overlooked because they just don't look like what people see in a typical CEO or a typical founder. So I love that part of it, too. And then, you know, the, the third part of it is, man, I love funding and supporting overlooked founders and underdogs, man. I, I think that throughout my life, I've sort of always been an underdog you know i've always been kind of punching over my weight and uh kind of walking into things that i didn't necessarily know what i was doing at that moment but i learned quickly right like when i started the nonprofit, people were kind of like who are you and why are you doing this are you a coder you know what have you already done right but i like knocked that out of the park right i took that from an idea to you know, working with Fortune 500 companies and, and creating those things. And then in economic development, it was the same deal. And when I founded my company, it was the same deal. And then when I, you know, went to the Middle East to follow my wife without a job, it was the same deal, right? Like I've always sort of been in these positions where I didn't have the background or the pedigree, right, to be where I was, but I knew that I could figure it out. And I always did. And so I really enjoy helping other people who are in that same position. I got to say, especially as a Howard man, you're making Morehouse proud right now, man, <laughs> with the journey and how it definitely going. That. Like, uh, I just love kind of the way you're describing your path and putting it in context and all that good stuff. So speaking of Morehouse, it doesn't necessarily have to be from your collegiate days, mm. uh, but who in your personal network that you've grown, uh, cultivated over the last several decades, 
has provided some really essential value that you continue to use. But it was unexpected. I mean, you're oh, in these big places, right? It's like, okay, you're encountering all these folks. It's sometimes transactional, sometimes, you know, biz, what have you. But who surprised you and what value they were able to deliver for you? Man, bro, there's so many people that I, it's really hard to pick one, you know? So I would have to say uh, Andy Aim, right? So Andy, again, you know, he's the founder of the Angel Investing School, right? And, you know, after I took that course, you know, I reached out to him like, all right, bro, like I took your class, now what? So he took time out to meet with me, you know? And he was right in the middle of like trying to grow slash pivot that business and but we but we just met right like not even nothing on the agenda just kind of like hey yeah sure I'll meet with you and since then we've sort of grown we're growing to become friends right and you know he's introduced me to several different people he started sending me deals and just like that time that we have where we're bouncing ideas off of each other has become really valuable right like I mean I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for Andy right I wouldn't yeah, probably I wouldn't be sitting here right now having, you know, talking on this podcast. Giovanni Chesney, right? So when I was working as a technical trainer at AWS, like I met this older brother by the name of Giovanni Chesney, and he was like a mentor to me. So Giovanni is probably one of the most technically gifted people I have ever met. He's one of the best instructors that I've ever met. And he's also one of the best people. And he took me on as a mentor and, and like we've grown into friends. But like, man, like just the time that he's taken to like teach me and help to mold me and help to give me advice as a married man, as a as a man was really valuable. Another person that I would mention has been uh, Kelsey Hightower. So Kelsey Hightower is just like this really well-known principal engineer at Google. And I used to like watch his videos when I was learning about Kubernetes and like, you know, when I was a technical trainer. So when I got the opportunity to work at Google, maybe a few months in, I was like, I'm about to reach out to Kelsey Hightower. And again, just reached out to him. We just been kind of kicking it ever since then, right? Like anytime, he's always been available. And this dude is like, I mean, he's one of the guys that Google sends to like sell their stuff. Like when you want to wow people, you send Kelsey Hightower, right? And so he's, a celebrity and bag, right? Like Jason Scott, LJ Irwin, Anika Henry. Talk about um, it. Talk about that because I get that feedback sometimes too. You know, it's it's a male dominated space, and we gotta recognize mm-hmm. that as well. So talk about any women who have provided some oh, yeah, some man. value for you as well. Man, so the first person that comes to mind is actually my coworker right now. She's been my coworker both at AWS and at Google. Her name is Leslie Bell, right? So Leslie was a, she was already at AWS when I got there, right? And she was somewhat of a mentor to me as well. So like, you know, we were on the same team, only black people on our team. So of course I reached out to her like, hey, what's up? And she pretty much has always been there to be like a uh, an advocate of mine, just kind of showing me the ropes. And then when she left to go to Google, she was like, hey, you trying to come work over here? And I was like, yeah. So like, I wouldn't even be at Google right now if it wasn't for Leslie Bell. And, you know, we work together right now and sometimes we get mad at each other. Right. Like, as you know, it's different when you're like working next to a person. You know what I'm saying? But like, bro, like she's like just been an advocate of mine and we've never met in person, which is crazy. So we've always only seen each other on a camera screen. Right. Like, but she 
is like she's been a huge advocate of mine and has really helped me to sort of grow professionally. Right. So shout out to Leslie Bell. I would say another person is Anika Henry. Right. So Anika is one of the founding members of BAG. Superstar. Right. Like super smart. And we haven't had like a bunch of interactions, but like, you know, anytime that I've ever needed her, she's always been there. Right. So she's kind of like the person who runs the black Googler angel investing school. And she's the person that kind of makes that happen. And so and she's also the person who kind of makes bag happen as well. But like she's just been like really like anytime that I wanted to know more, anytime that I want to get more involved, like she's been there. Those are the two that come to mind just like right now in my life. But to be honest, like there have always been like like honestly, my best advocates have always been women, man, like black women, especially. Right. Like they kind of want to see you win. You know what I mean? Especially I think when you're humble enough to kind of say like, hey, I don't know this thing and I see that you do. Can you help me? And they're like always there. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.